Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boris Johnson has become Boris the Builder as he announced his strategy to get the UK out of the coronavirus economic slump. So we will build better and build greener, but we will also build faster. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happened and happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. This Saturday has been termed Independence Day, Super Saturday. It's the day that the UK reopens. So what better time to reopen and relaunch our politics podcast? It's the same series you know and love, but rebranded and refreshed in a way we think you'll enjoy. In this episode, I'll be discussing the Prime Minister's plan to pull the UK out of a recession and his dramatic proposals for reshaping Whitehall with political editor George Parker and columnist Robert Shrimsley. And later, with political correspondent Laura Hughes and foreign affairs commentator Gideon Rackman, we'll be discussing the UK's bold offers of visas and citizenship to the people of Hong Kong. So George and Robert, greetings. Hello. Hi, Seb. We're all behaving responsibly for this grand reopening. I've got my face mask, social distancing, everything. (laughs) Well, it's lovely to have you on as ever. We've been spending a lot of this week thinking about Franklin D. Roosevelt, who is the US president, cited by Boris Johnson as his inspiration for this British New Deal. Out of all the Roosevelts, who's your favourite and what lesson do they have, Robert? Well, I know you want to talk about Teddy, so I won't talk about him too long, though I think it's interesting he could have been a far more obvious model for Boris Johnson, combining, as it were, attacks on sort of corrupt business and immense nationalism, though he's not quite as popular with the Black Lives Matter movement as he is with, say, Conservatives. But I suppose I'm going to go off at a tangent. I'm going to say that we should look at Eleanor, the Roosevelt we talk about least, the one who wasn't president, and the one who played an enormous role initially as FDR's wife in advancing the cause of women and advancing the cause of civil rights. She was, I think, the first really high-profile first lady and an enormously important figure in the cause of liberalism in America all the way through her career. It's not an unblemished record. She had an appalling record of anti-Semitism in her early years, though she got a little bit better when she met and began to like a particular Jew called Bernard Baruch. But I think, just to be different, I'm going to say Eleanor. Well, you mentioned I was going to say Teddy, and I am going to take Teddy because of his square deal where he came in and talked about, you know, clamping down corporatism and taxing the robber barons. That was something that, in fact, was cited in British politics by Nick Bowles, who was a minister for many years under David Cameron. He said, this is what the right in British politics needs to do, to take on crony capitalism and focus on the small businesses, the small man. And I think that would have made a more straightforward comparison for Boris Johnson. But George, who's your favourite? But Roosevelt and why? Well, I mean, look, I took some soundings from my daughter, Maddie, who's doing A-level politics and studying Roosevelt at the moment. And she said, it's got to be Eleanor. So Robert's already done there. But I think Eleanor Roosevelt, particularly given the fact that we learned this week from Amber Rudd, that Boris Johnson, when he was handing out cabinet jobs, rather forgot that there was an equalities minister's job to hand out and rather sort of late in the day gave it to Amber Rudd. So I think Eleanor Roosevelt, a bit of an inspiration for Boris Johnson on that score. But I mean, the other one, obviously, is FDR, who Boris Johnson hopes to be 
compared to um, this New Deal thing. Certainly the New Deal was a catchy slogan. I think the one thing I say about FDR is they actually got on and did things and built things rather than talking about it in advance. I think that's the danger for Boris Johnson this week, that he himself was comparing himself to FDR. I think it's probably better to actually get stuff built and leave it to others to make those comparisons. I do think it's worth saying, I mean, FDR, the one thing he has, which I can see particular appeal to Boris, is the sense of showmanship. I mean, he was a president who really understood how to talk to ordinary Americans, be it through the so-called fireside chats. He's just very good at projecting optimism and hope. And that's something that you can see would appeal very much to Boris Johnson. Indeed, and it was something that appealed to Ronald Reagan, who also cited FDR as an unusual inspiration. But let's move from the past and into the present and how Boris Johnson is hoping to get his government away from coronavirus and back on track to his agenda for levelling up an unequal country. Dudley is one of the Red War seats that the Conservative Party won for the first time from Labour in last year's general election. It's therefore no surprise that's where Boris Johnson went this week to deliver his first major policy speech in some time. Entitled Build, 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 the Prime Minister set out plans to construct more houses, hospitals, roads and railways, and crucially, to reform planning laws. Instead of the austerity that followed the financial crisis, he promised more spending and borrowing. George Parker, what did you make of Boris Johnson's speech? Well, I think first thing to say, it was a bit of a damp squib. I think it was partly to do with the expectation management by number 10 beforehand that we've been hearing about this big speech that was coming down the track for weeks in advance. And I thought we were going to see some sort of change of direction, some sort of response to the coronavirus crisis, instead of which, essentially what it was, and it's important, I suppose, in this respect, it was Boris Johnson restating that he was sticking to the agenda that he mapped out in the Tory manifesto in December 2019, and then, of course, in the budget on March the 11th. In other words, all those big infrastructure projects that were already in the pipeline would go ahead. There would be no reversion to austerity, in spite of the pounding the public finances are taking at the moment due to coronavirus. And they're sticking with a plan. So in the end, when you boil down what Boris Johnson said in the speech was, he was sticking with plan A, but he was going to do it with a little bit more urgency and sweep away a bit of planning red tape to make things happen more quickly. Well, we'll see if that actually happens in practice. I think probably slightly more of the action will take place next week with Rishi Sunak's economic statement. Indeed. And Robert, this felt like the first time Boris Johnson has tried to define what exactly Johnsonism is, particularly in the age of coronavirus. But he had to define what he was against. I am not a communist. I believe it is also the job of government to create the conditions for free market enterprise. Boris Johnson is aware that this is not exactly normal conservative politics. As we've heard, he said that he certainly was not left wing. Yes, he said, I am not a communist. The thought that flashed immediately through my head was Richard Nixon saying, I am not a crook. But I think we can be fairly sure Boris Johnson isn't a communist. I think one of the issues that's dogged this government in terms of its positioning in public mind is that in some respects, it has this air and it has a lot of people in it who are from the radical right of the Conservative Party. And yet you have Boris Johnson, who really isn't. And I think it must be a terrible disappointment to a number of his colleagues, particularly the Goves, the Cummingses and that kind of thing. The best definition I've ever seen of him is the one he talked about himself as being a Brexity Hezer. A reference to Michael Hesline that this is someone who's going to intervene heavily in the governing of the country, in the running of industry, in the running of the economy. And I think that is the positioning that Boris Johnson is trying to set out. And he's going to intervene heavenly for ordinary people rather than bosses and producers. And I think one of the things you often hear when you talk to people in this government 
is they reference what happened after the financial crisis and they say those bailouts helped the rich and they didn't help the ordinary people. We're making sure that whatever we do, our bailouts go to the ordinary person. And I think the fundamental point about Johnsonism, if it exists at all, is that it is targeted directly at ordinary swing voters, the kind of people who could easily go back to the Labour Party, the kind of people who were won by Margaret Thatcher and won by Tony Blair, and saying, we are a government for you. We're going to put your interests at the heart of our policies because, you know, the rich can take care of themselves. The highly educated can take care of themselves. They've got plenty of opportunities. We are about providing opportunities for you and providing more equality in the regions and the levelling up agenda we're going to hear again and again and again. And I think in terms of the speech itself, the one question I have over it, and I've had for quite a while, is that in their approach to economic policy, there is still a lot of long-term thinking, which is uninterrupted by the coronavirus crisis, so that actually most of what they're talking about is what they were talking about before. And I think the real question that has to be asked of this government over the next months and year is whether they can really broaden beyond what they thought they were going to do before this crisis hit. George, it does feel in Downing Street that they want to say the coronavirus, the worst of it is now past. Obviously, we've got Super Saturday, which will be when listeners hear this, when pubs and restaurants and hotels reopen again for the first time in many, many months. And they want to get back to how things were before. But as you said, first of all, the public finances have taken a big hit. And second of all, the credibility of this government has taken a huge hit, not just the Dominic Cummings going off to Barnard Castle affair a few months ago. But generally, there is a sense, I think, from a lot of people that it hasn't handled this as well as it could. Could, and that's going to make it more difficult if they just want to pretend it's business as normal. Yes, I think that's true. The government's credibility has been hit by coronavirus. And you got a flavour of that in Boris Johnson's speech in Dudley, where he admitted that people would say that the government got quite a bit wrong. And he said, we owe people an honest discussion about that. And he listed some of the things that the government did right in dealing with coronavirus, including helping to develop a vaccine and getting those Nightingale hospitals up and running quickly. The list of things that he didn't mention was longer, though. So, for example, the government's record on care homes, testing, tracing, and of course, fundamentally, the government's record in getting the country into lockdown swiftly enough back in March. So the speech really was an attempt by the government to move on from the coronavirus agenda. We know for a fact that the coronavirus episode will dog this government for many months to come. And I think they believe that if they can get the economic response right, the public will be prepared to forgive them for quite a lot of what happened in the early stages of the pandemic. And provided jobs come back quickly and the economy recovers, then the public will forgive them by the time the next election comes around. So really getting the economic response right is absolutely critical for the Johnson government. I completely agree with what George is saying. But I think getting the health response right is every bit as crucial. Because the one thing that troubles me about the way the government is acting at the moment is that It is acting as if you can, through politics and economics, force the issue on the health crisis that is coming and that you can actually get past it. And I think part of this goes to the politics of needing to seem competent, as George said, because the longer that we're in health crisis, the more the government's at the mercy of events and also the needs of the economy. Well, the problem is, if you lose control of this health crisis, then the politics goes out the window and the economics goes out the window. And we're seeing in the United States at the moment what's happening where states have lost control of this pandemic and how damaging it can be. And we saw in the lockdown in Leicester this week an example and a reminder to this government of what's going to happen if the virus gets out of control in the next two or three weeks. As lockdown has been eased, we would probably expect to see an increase in cases. And if the government hasn't got the mechanisms in place to jump on those quickly, then 
all the politics and all the economic thinking is going to make absolutely no difference. It's a very difficult moment for the government here because if uh, the pubs become scenes of what Boris Johnson's previously called a roiling bacchanalian mass... Or or busy, as we like to say. um, ..and the virus starts to pick up, then the government will get the blame for that. So it's a really tricky position the government's in. And you saw a bit of that earlier this week where the Treasury tweeted out an image saying, have a drink for Britain at the weekend... And the tweet was quickly deleted after a bit of a backlash. So it's a very delicate moment. I think what's happened in Leicester is a very good example of this, that the whole focus of the government is let's all go out, have a great time, have lots of fun. But at the same time, we've had what will be the testing of the first localised lockdown in the UK in Leicester, which has seen its coronavirus spread out of control quite quickly. When the rest of the country, 2% of the tests were returning positive. In Leicester, it was 10%. And it is not being eased this Saturday. Non-essential shops will close. And the government's going to give it another two weeks to see how that goes down. And again, We've had this slightly chaotic feel to it. The local leadership didn't quite know what was happening, when it was going to be opened up again. And I think that this is very crucial for Boris Johnson, because if these localised lockdowns don't work, then we are facing the prospect of the whole country going back into lockdown. And that's something that I think psychologically is very difficult and economically very difficult for the government too. Yes, the thing that was haunting the scientists at the start of this whole process, you know, when we look back at it and we try to work out why it was they didn't go into lockdown earlier, you look back through the minutes of the SAGE meetings, it was the fear that if you did go into a lockdown, you'd only end up with an equally damaging second spike later in the year. So making these local lockdowns work is absolutely essential. And so far, there's been some of the problems that have dogged the government's response earlier on. For example, the lack of prompt data from the testing being given to the people who needed to know about it. In this case, the health authorities and the local authority in Leicester. Now, Rishi Sunak, he's going to be giving his big policy speech next week. And unlike Boris Johnson's Dudley speech, where there was no new money, this is where the spending taps are really going to be turned on. What kind of things are we expecting from the Chancellor? Because this is absolutely crucial to get this part of the government's response right. I think the first thing to say is that Rishi Sunak is being quite cautious about this. And In an ideal world, he would be making all the big spending decisions and tax decisions in the autumn when his scheduled budget's taking place, when he'll have a bit more information about the data coming in. But equally, he is under pressure next Wednesday to do stuff to sustain the recovery at the moment. And the government is looking very closely at what's happened in countries like France and Germany, where the lockdown was lifted, where there has been some encouraging signs that retail spending is coming back. He'll be having a look at how many people are down the pub on Saturday night, just anecdotally to see what sort of the mentality of the British consumers like, are people prepared to go out of it before making his final decisions? What we will hear a lot about is jobs. Jobs will be the focus of this statement on the 8th and more details about the government's plan for a so-called opportunity guarantee where all young people will either have an apprenticeship or in-work training. But then the big question is how much does he do to stimulate the economy on the tax side? We are hearing lots about the government wanted to target any efforts That, I think, suggests they could be doing something like, for example, having a temporary VAT cut for the hospitality sector, which is the one that's still functioning well below normal capacity and where there are still huge job problems. If you have an across-the-board VAT cut, the danger is you just get people spending on goods which are imported into the country. But the very strong impression we're getting from the Treasury, at least this far out, is this is not going to be a big moment where the tax cut floodgates are opened up rather than Rishi Sunak wants to keep a close eye on things and make big decisions in the autumn. 
Now, Robert, I just want to look backside to something that happened last week, which was Mark Sedwell and his ouster as cabinet secretary. This is something that we've been reporting on the FT for months now, that tensions between Boris Johnson's inner circle and the cabinet secretary, the head of the civil service, were growing. And those rumours and chatter started to build up pace last week up until it came to a climax on Sunday when it was announced that Sir Mark would step down from his position as head of the civil service and the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor come September. It's a big change for the permanent part of the UK's government and tells us a lot about what's going to be coming down the tracks in terms of Whitehall reform from Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, his chief aide, who's really driving this. Yes, it is a big moment. I think it's fair to say that there was disquiet about the way things were set up from the very start of this government, not least the fact that Mark Sedwell held two major jobs at the same time, National Security Advisor and Cabinet Secretary. That was never an ideal situation. They tried to make the best of it. And I think it became clear over the course of the coronavirus crisis, they just felt the centre wasn't strong enough, that he himself didn't have the right background for managing a domestic crisis, that they wanted a leaner, more centralised, more directive number 10 in the Cabinet Office. And that's the direction that they're moving. And they won't be the first government to think this way and try to do this. We probably all remember Tony Blair's delivery unit and his effort to get on top of the multi-tentacled beast that is the British government. I think people are going to be looking at a couple of things around this. The first is who Sir Mark Sebel is replaced by as cabinet secretary. The indications are, I think, that it will not necessarily have to be somebody who is ideologically simpatico with this government over Brexit. They certainly can't be hostile to the government's ambitions, but somebody who can deliver the kind of reforms to the civil service that they want. A lot of people got very excited about the choice of the new national security advisor, who's David Frost, who's been running the Brexit negotiations. And that's a bit more interesting because he has, as far as we know, no intelligence service background, no previous time being on top of intelligence and security matters, which made it ironic because on Saturday, Michael Gove made a big speech about the need to bring more expertise into government. Yet the first you know, high profile appointment they make is somebody who's less expert than his predecessor. George, the appointment of David Frost was widely criticised by people we spoke to in the defence and security community, but also by the former Prime Minister, Theresa May. This is what she had to say. On Saturday, my right honourable friend said, we must be able to promote those with proven expertise. Why then is the new National Security Advisor a political appointee with no proven expertise in national security? You can hear from that that David Frost, who is currently Boris Johnson's Brexit advisor, the man trying to get a trade deal with Brussels before the end of the year, has not gone down entirely well. I wouldn't like to have been Michael Gove in the chamber there getting the death stare from Theresa May. It was, <laughs> it was an incredible moment in the House of Commons. The thing about David Frost is he is one of the very few people senior in the, formerly in the Foreign Office, who was a committed Brexiteer. And I think the question really is whether this is a sign that when Michael Gove and Boris Johnson talked about making the civil service more reflective of the public or whatever, or more in tune with public priorities, really that is code for bringing in a load of Brexiteers into senior positions. It was a very controversial appointment. It caused a lot of upset in the defence and foreign service community. And I think that's one of the reasons why they were very keen at the same time to say, look, Mark Seppel's cabinet secretary role would be advertised only for people who are current civil servants, not political appointments. And be fascinated to see who they go for there. Dominic Cummings, the PM's chief advisor, was telling special advisors, political advisors this week, that it would be stupid, basically, to seek out a Brexiteer permanent secretary to become cabinet secretary just on that basis. 
I think that's probably true because it would narrow down the field pretty, pretty spectacularly. I think we've managed to find two, haven't we, Seb? Two current permanent secretaries who actually say they supported Brexit. Or putting it about friends of these cabinet secretaries, <laughs> yeah. which is uh, Peter Schofield at the Department for Work and Pensions and potentially Chris Warmold at the uh, Department for Health have suggested they may have backed Brexit. I do think there is one political point to add in here, which is one of the things that we, we, we notice a lot is that the media outriders for this government, the people who at least one critical journalist referred to as Dominic Cummings stenographers, have been very, very focused in blaming the civil service and particularly public health England for as many of the errors of the coronavirus crisis as they possibly can. And there are cases to answer unquestionably on the public health England side. But I think this also goes to the point of establishing alibis for the failings of this government. And the idea that you can blame the civil servants for things that have gone wrong so far. I do think there is a certain myopia here in thinking that you can get away with this very long, because the truth is the public expect governments to govern. They expect prime ministers to lead and if things to be wrong, to be fixed. So you can do this for a little bit, but this isn't going to carry them through for the full five years. The truth is to really effect change, you need powerful and effective ministers as well as good civil servants. And we have a cabinet at the moment in many places is very, very weak indeed. You can have a strong centre, but if you do not have a strong Secretary of State driving the agenda, you're going to find it very difficult to do all the things you want to do. I totally agree with Robert on that. When you're in Downing Street, you become obsessed about controlling everything from the centre and not trusting ministers to do their jobs. But if you look back at Dominic Cummings' record in government before he went into number 10, he worked very effectively with Michael Gove at the Department of Education, pushing through a number of reforms, quite controversial in many cases, but they were delivered. And I remember speaking to Dominic Cummings at the time, and he said, look, we don't tell Downing Street what we're doing in here because they'll just screw things up. We just get on and do it. And in a way, that's a different model, and I think a better model for running a government where you have a strong prime minister setting the direction of travel for the government, the priorities for the government, and then appointing self-confident, competent ministers to get on and do it. And unfortunately, as Robert says, we're not getting that at the moment. And finally, if anyone wants to read more about this, then the key thing to look at, of course, is Michael Goh's Ditchley lecture, which he gave last weekend, which captures the whole spirit of what he wants to do about civil service reform. Over now to Hong Kong, where the Chinese government carried through its threat to implement tough new national security laws. This matters to the UK because in the Sino-British Joint Declaration, signed in 1984, it has a responsibility to ensure the two systems of government are protected in the one country. But with one of those systems disappearing, the Johnson government has made a bold pledge to three million people in Hong Kong to come and work in the UK and possibly become citizens. Laura, this feels like a really significant moment in foreign policy, but also immigration policy too. What was the thinking behind this in Downing Street? Fascinating, isn't it, that this is a Brexiteer government about to roll out a point-based immigration system, yet this week we've seen them offer a route to citizenship for sort of up to three million people. The reason for it, the line that you get from officials is it's the right thing to do. This has been on the cards for a while now because we knew that Beijing was eyeing this new national security law. As a consequence, we have had to really stay true to a pledge to open up this path of citizenship. In terms of the detail, There are currently around 350,000 people who hold these British national overseas passports. And this is a document that was issued to Hong Kong residents born before the handover of the territory from the UK to 
China in 1997, there are actually a further 2.5 million people who are eligible for this status. And under the government's plans, which they still haven't completely set out the detail of, anyone with this status is going to be granted five years limited leave to live and work in the UK. And after that period, they'll be able to apply for settled status. And then a year later, they can apply for permanent citizenship. And Dominic Robb was really clear in the Commons this week, there's going to be no quotas on numbers. This is sort of effective immediately, really. So it's a really generous, generous offer. And quite strikingly, there wasn't a single murmur of discontent, a single MP who raised any sort of opposition to this in the House of Commons when both the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary confirmed the UK were going to go ahead with their plan. It is a real moment. The government clearly feels very passionate about this. We just listened to what Mr. Raab told MPs when he said that China had broken its promises to the international community. China, through this national security legislation, is not living up to its promises to the people of Hong Kong. We will live up to our promises to them. Gideon, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast, presenter of the FT's excellent Rackman Review podcast on foreign affairs. What did you make of the UK's move here? Because they would have known it was provocative and could be seen as a very aggressive one by Beijing. Yeah, I think that the British government has had to be reconciled for a while now to the idea that relations with China are in a downward spiral. And Britain is not unique in this. The American relationship with China has been getting worse and worse ever since the Trump administration started the trade war. And the US is also making a lot of what's happening in Hong Kong. But other countries too, Australia now has trade tariffs imposed on it by China because the Australian government suggested there should be an inquiry into COVID-19. The Indians and the Chinese have been clashing on the Indian-Chinese border and some 20 Indian troops were killed there. So China is becoming more aggressive all round. And there's not much that the UK can do about it. I think that they may feel, however, that on the specific issue of Hong Kong, although China has said that Britain will bear the full consequences of this, it's not clear what direct consequences there can be from offering citizenship to these Hong Kong people. I mean, some people were joking, what are they going to do? Offer Chinese citizenship to 3 million British people? There's no obvious tit for tat. However, I do think it has serious implications for what remained of David Cameron's aspiration to have a golden era in trade relations between Britain and China, and in particular for the decision which was taken very recently to allow Huawei, the Chinese telecoms company, to take a 30% plus stake in Britain's 5G telecoms network. Even in January, talking to government officials about this, they were defending the decision, saying they were going to stick by it. I just don't think it's going to prove sustainable now. That's certainly the view that we've picked up this week, Laura, that the Huawei decision that was made earlier this year was very controversial. And I think there was 38 Tory MPs rebelled against it in a vote that was forced by those opposed to the Chinese manufacturer's involvement in the 5G network. But it really does feel it's going to be when not if the Johnson government changes its mind on that, which again will be seen as another toughening of the Sino-skepticism that's brewing in Westminster. I think where the announcement this week slightly differs from the perspective of the government who are really looking at our relationship with China, as we know, is that for them, this is a human rights issue rather than an economic issue. And that's what the government has to weigh up as they go forward in terms of really setting out and establishing a sort of realistic approach to China. Another point to sort of mention is that this offer to BNO 
passport holders was very much driven by Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, and Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary. And officials there really keen to emphasise the point that both of them are in this country because of the generosity of the UK. And this was a very personal issue for both of them. So Dominic Raab is the son of a Czech-born Jewish father who came to Britain as a refugee. Priti Patel's parents, Ugandan Asians, who moved to Britain shortly before their community was expelled by Idi Amin. Because of course, back then in the 1960s, 70s, that's when the UK actually did something quite similar to what we've done this week, which was to offer people British passports and somewhere to come and live and work. So I think from number 10's perspective, they would almost distinguish this particular issue from the broader toughening up of its stance towards Beijing, because I don't think it's quite as clear cut. And there are some within number 10 who are still trying to make the case that it's within our economic interest to try and forge a realistic approach. But just on terms of the human rights point here and the particular responsibility we have, when you look at what is going on under this law, terrorism, subversion, collusion with foreign elements, it could all attract penalties of up to life imprisonment. And it's deliberately vague. So this could really see a lot of people put in prison and even people just passing through the territory who express negative views. That really is quite serious. So yes, this absolutely falls within a broader pattern. And we saw really quite tough language from Dominic Raab. But again, he said earlier this year that relations with China can't just continue business as normal. The language is really striking China hitting back. So this is quite a toughening of our stance. But I would also just caution, I think it's really specific to this one issue. But Gideon, let's look at the realpolitik of this for a moment, because obviously the reason that we had that golden era where George Osborne was talking up all the investment opportunities for China in the UK. And of course, we remember when David Cameron took President Xi to his local pub and they had a pint there. And that was really an image that symbolised that era. But there has to be some involvement. And I think there is a danger that you could get thrown into a new Cold War with China, which is something that Chris Patton, who was the last governor of Hong Kong, has warned about this week. Yeah, although I don't think it's necessarily within Britain's control. I think, you know, I talked to senior officials about this, that there is a danger that if the US continues to toughen its stance and China as well, Britain may be faced increasingly by a choice where the Americans, for example, who are already putting enormous pressure on over Huawei will say, look, you either go with your special relationship with us or you stick with the Chinese investment and all that kind of thing that you're trying to cultivate. But that will have implications, for example, over intelligence sharing and so on. I think the British have felt that maybe they could call the American bluff on this. But increasingly, they may share some of America's concerns about these security issues. Plus, if relations between the US and China continue to deteriorate, and other very close British allies, such as the Australians, also find that they're having a tougher and tougher time with China, it may be that Britain finds itself pulled in a more antagonistic direction. I don't think you can say it's a completely done deal, but it certainly seems to be the way things are drifting. 
There's also a sense some Tories, you don't hear them as vocally as people like Ian Duncan Smith, who are always rattling in the cages on China. But there are some who are saying, we are concerned about this. I think Michael Heseltine's one person. China is the emerging world power. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And so you have to find ways of living with it whilst not in any way supporting it, it, the policies which you disapprove. If you look at some of the big infrastructure projects in the UK, the Hinkley Point power station, that's backed with the Chinese money. The expansion of Sizewall Power Station out in Anglia, that's been backed by Chinese technology as well. No, it's not going to be easy at all. Indeed, if you look at the broader vision of global Britain, which the government set out, it was very much predicated on the idea that Europe was no longer the growth market of the future, that the growth of the future would come from China and Asia more broadly, but particularly from China. And it made, in an economic sense, complete sense to try to focus on building up relations with China, which is increasingly, as you say, not just a market, but also a pool of capital and a pool of investment when they were looking for people to save what remains of the British steel industry. The Chinese and the Turks, I think, were the only two bidders. So I don't think there'll be an absolute severance, but it's difficult because the Chinese have a way of trying to punish you if you do things that they don't like politically. The Cameron golden era came after Britain had been put in the deep freeze for a couple of years, no meetings, no investment projects, because Cameron had met the Dalai Lama. And I think that if the Chinese feel strong enough, they may choose to put a freeze on other issues over Hong Kong. On the other hand, Huawei is a very, very important prestige project for them. It was watched with immense tension in Beijing, and it was regarded as something of a triumph when Britain did agree to let Huawei in. The Chinese also have difficult calculations and interests to balance. I think just one thing to mention, though, on the immigration thing, which is, as you say, a very striking move to potentially allow three million people to move to the UK. It could happen, but I think you have to say that, firstly, it's an enormous step for Hong Kong citizens to move from what is a very prosperous place where they will have roots to the UK and set up a new life. And also, I don't think it'll only be the British who are making this kind of offer. The Australians are thinking about it. There's a very big community of ex-Hong Kongers living in Vancouver in Canada. So if the worst were to come to the worst and everyone would feel that they had no future in Hong Kong, it's not clear to me that all three million would move to Britain. I would agree with Gideon there that the government don't assume three million people are suddenly going to arrive here in the UK. And I think there's a sort of calculation that by giving people this offer, it's a threat to China because if lots of wealth creators based out there have this British passport in their back pocket, if things get worse and if the crackdown really starts to shake the middle classes in Hong Kong, then yes, they have the option of coming here. It's interesting to note that Paddy Ashdown back in 1997 was calling for John Major, the then Tory Prime Minister, to accept a lot more responsibility for residents who were facing a bit of an uncertain future. And Tony Blair, the Labour opposition leader, and John Major both felt that it would just be too unpopular with the British public. And in that event, a lot of Hong Kongers actually did. They headed for Vancouver and San Francisco, where they made a lot of money. So you might get a lot of wealth creators coming here. That's one reason why I think the government aren't too concerned. But also, they just don't think realistically you're going to see those sorts of numbers coming over. 
It's very curious when you look at the public polling about this, that offering this route to citizenship seems to be universally popular across Labour supporters, Conservative voters, Brexiters and Leavers. But is there a chance, do you think, Lauren Gideon, that it might create some kind of backlash? And people like the idea of opening up our borders to these prosperous, hardworking people. But when they come, and then you see a lot of the things you've seen throughout the immigration debate in Britain, which is a strain on public services, potentially strain on integration issues, and that it could in some ways backfire. I was a bit surprised both by the offer and by the public reaction. I mean, maybe I'm overly cynical about human nature, but we had just seen 2016, a Brexit campaign, which was based in large part on the need to control immigration and the fact that a million polls had moved here, not necessarily permanently, incidentally, was too much. And the polls are, to put it crudely, white Europeans. They're pretty easy to integrate. They worked very hard, et cetera, et cetera. Most of them were employed. And yet, even so, there was a considerable backlash. I think it is true that the Hong Kong Chinese have a very positive image as industrious wealth creators, as Laura put it. But you could make the same case about the polls as well. I don't see why you would have a backlash against the polls and not against the Hong Kong Chinese. So I think to some extent, it's a kind of gamble that large numbers won't move. There's also a sort of perceived need on the part of Conservatives and some Leave voters to demonstrate that actually Brexit was not about racism or xenophobia, as they were often accused of, and that they are capable of making this very big and generous offer. But if they were called on it, then there might be some kind of backlash. I was curious enough to go looking at the website of Migration Watch, which is one of the lobby groups that campaigned very hard against Polish immigration and immigration of all sorts. And they actually were beginning to make a bit of a fuss about it. But it's still very much confined to that corner of migration obsessives, if I can put it that way, rather than a more broad reaction. I think a lot of it's going to depend on the way that events play out in the coming months and years as China tightens its grip on Hong Kong. And officials that you speak to who are sort of in the room when this decision was made felt very comforted by the polling, which showed this was very popular. And they also felt that because we're already seeing these extraordinary images coming out of Hong Kong, that British people would accept that it was just not right and that this really genuinely was the thing that we should be doing. It is fascinating to talk to some of the people behind the sort of Vote Leave campaign. The message that they were really trying to put out there during this week was that the British public are generous and they will see what's going on and they will want to do the right thing. But Sebastian, if I could just add a final word, I mean, listening to what Laura says, it does remind me of talking to a former official in the Blair government who said in 2004, when Britain again made a very generous offer, as they saw it, and said, we're going to be one of, I think, only three EU countries that's going to immediately open our migration markets to Eastern Europe, that they were also very confident about it. They held a party in Downing Street to celebrate their own generosity. And in retrospect, he felt that that was a decision that actually helped lead to Brexit. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. Thank you very much as ever to George, Robert, Laura and Gideon for joining. And if you like this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And if that's not enough, we'll begin our interview specials next week. On Wednesday, I'm speaking to Jeremy Hunt, who will give us his views on why the UK was not better prepared for the coronavirus pandemic. 
Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder, Josh Delamere, and Breen Turner. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.